Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Friday, March 10th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how is it going? Matt, it's going pretty good, dude. Ides of March, stoked that my birthday is in a week. I'm just going to keep bringing it up on this show until it's eventually my birthday. And yeah, just 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 stoked to be here today. Do you think there's a bigger like loser in history? I don't mean loser as in like the the like I'm not talking down to this person. I mean they lost the battle than St. Patrick when you were born. Like all of a sudden <laughs> people just forgot about St. Patrick's. Day. Now it's just Nick Janus's birthday. Yeah. That's true. You know what's funny? <laughs> I always I always get the question like don't you wish your birthday like wasn't on a holiday? And ultimately I'm like, don't you wish your birthday was on St. Patrick's Day? Literally every single year, <laughs> there's an absolute party going on. And I, there's never like an excuse, you know, like I don't need to like force people to have like a good time on my birthday. They're already doing it themselves. True, true. So. Same for Groundhog's Day, really, for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just wake up with uh, a couple of Guinnesses and make sure that Phil saw his shadow. Hell yeah. All right, let's turn this episode into a party now. for our quick hits for the week and the first one is by christina larson and patrick whittle of the associated press and it's titled nations reach accord to protect marine life on high seas after two weeks of talks in the united nations new york headquarters the un members have agreed on a treaty to protect ocean biodiversity for the first time ever protecting marine life in international waters had been discussed for over 20 years but it never amounted to a treaty These protections now apply to nearly half of Earth's surface. This was called a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to protect the oceans by Nicola Clark of the Pew Charitable Trusts. The article states that the treaty will create a new body to manage conservation of ocean life and establish marine protected areas in the high seas, which is critical to protecting 30% of the planet's waters, a goal from the most recent UN Biodiversity Conference. The treaty establishes ground rules for conducting environmental impact assessments for commercial activities in the oceans, which means that all ocean development will need to be looked at through a certain standard before that can move forward. This treaty doesn't actually protect anything, but it now gives a pathway forward to protect the high seas. In other words, this treaty in and of itself is not protecting what's actually out in the ocean, but it now gives all of the countries that are signing the treaty the framework that they need to be able to work together. It would also provide protections for migratory animals like dolphins and whales who do not live in the ocean off of one country alone. Yeah, and this will help coastal biodiversity and economies for coastal regions as well. The article ends by saying the high seas have long suffered exploitation due to commercial fishing and mining as well as pollution from chemicals and plastics. 
and conservationists and environmentalists are going to be watching adoption of this treaty very closely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's going to be important to see what comes out of this treaty now that we do have the framework. But at the very least, you know, I'm looking at this article and actually the um, NPR's Up First covered it on Monday of this week. I feel really hopeful seeing this in place now because we've talked about it on the show. The ocean is I mean, we all know how important the ocean is and we still mm-hmm. don't realize like it's even more important than that. When you talk about yeah. the amount of life that lives in the oceans and the amount of carbon that that life sequesters, the oceans are important for a multitude of reasons. So being able to protect the animals that live there, the marine vegetation that lives there, this is just all around going to be good for wildlife, for people, for ecotourism, and most importantly for the planet as a whole. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And for some reason, when I read this, the title, I saw high seas and I was like, why is that such like a pirate term like that? Yep. Why is it such like I, I can't get it through my head like it's just a normal term. It sounds like a pirate term. Like, what does that mean to you? Like high seas? What what does that include? I should say. I, I thought the same thing. And it's just because it's international waters. It's like the 20 miles off the coast, I think. Okay, there we um, go. That's or, the classification yeah, I, I was forget. looking for. Yeah. I forget what the number is. Uh, 20 is jumping out at me, but that could be wrong. It's basically the high seas are the parts of the ocean that are just those deep waters that are not governed by a single country. Right. So that's why it gets hard to protect because, you know, it's really easy to say that's someone else's responsibility. Right. It's also easy to say, who cares if we pollute this while we're passing through on our cargo ship? It's not our responsibility. Yep. Up until now. And this treaty now gives all of the members of the UN a way to say, Sure, it might not be your responsibility, but it's all of our responsibility, which now includes you, polluter. Right, exactly. Okay, I'm glad you cleared that up. That's good. All right, the next story is from The Guardian's Graham Redfern, who writes, Everyone should be concerned. Antarctic sea ice reaches lowest levels ever recorded. Scientists have been tracking Antarctica's sea ice level through satellite data since 1979. The continent typically peaks in September before reaching lows every year in February as the southern hemisphere reaches its summer. There has never been a lower amount of sea ice around the continent than there was last week. Dr. Will Hobbs of the University of Tasmania said this wasn't even close and it was really only a matter of time before that record was broken. Sea ice is extremely reflective, so it typically does not melt from sunlight alone. When there's open water behind sea ice, it can melt the ice from underneath. The article says that Antarctica, especially on land, holds enough ice to raise sea levels by many meters if it were to melt. Melting sea ice does not directly raise sea levels because it's already floating on the water. But the effects of this melting can raise sea levels. And that's something that I think is really important to highlight because a lot of us have probably had that thought, you know, when my ice cubes in my drink melt, I don't get more water. So why do people talk about, you know, the sea levels rising as the glaciers melt? It's it's more important that, you know, the land ice is going to be melting and running off. Or as the sea ice melts, this next point that I'm going to get into gets more and more important. And that next point is sea ice helps buffer storm effects on the coast which is going to mean less erosion from waves and storms. If the sea ice disappears for longer periods of time, 
the increased wave action could lead to more ice sheets from the land or from the edge of a glacier Mm -hmm. falling into the sea. Data provided by scientist Dr. Rob Massam of the Australian Antarctic Division and Dr. Phil Reed of the Bureau of Meteorology shows two-thirds of the continent's coastline was exposed to open water last month, which is well above the long-term average of roughly 50%. The authors point out that Antarctica is hard to study because it's tough to gather data around a continent exposed to huge variations in wind and storms from all sides. The article ends by saying that Antarctic scientists are now trying to figure out whether the drops in sea ice and the back-to-back record lows are a natural phenomenon in a continent that has always been difficult to study, or if the records are another clear sign that the climate crisis is beating down on that frozen continent. Either way, warming oceans due to climate change cannot be helping. Even if this is a natural phenomenon, the the water that is cycling in is going to be warmer. It's not going to make it easier for that sea ice to freeze over again like we're supposed to be seeing when the Southern Hemisphere starts to reach its fall and winter seasons. Yeah, exactly. And like, we're still just getting warmer climates in general anyway. So it's like, it's not, we're not having those crazy deep freezes like we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, we need to conserve all the sea ice that we possibly can. Um, because once it's gone, it's there's no way to replace it. We we don't have a big freezer or a big refrigerator that can just create sea ice out of nowhere. So every bit counts. Yeah, and, and looking at global heat maps year after year, you, you see that. You know, it's not just where you know Nick and I both live in the northeastern United States. It's not like it's just here that's experiencing warmer climates. Like you can see out in the middle of the ocean, it's still warmer in the southern mm-hmm. hemisphere. It's warmer. In the Eastern Hemisphere, it's warmer. Like wherever you look, the planet as a whole is warmer now than it ever has been. And that's going to make it really, really tough on us. So I think something that you pointed out that's worth bringing up, we do need to conserve that. And that's why I think it was last week when we talked about methane a little bit. Decreasing methane emissions is one of the best ways that we can both lower our emissions now but also give us more time to lower our carbon dioxide emissions because methane, it's really potent, but it doesn't hang out in the atmosphere long. So if we can fix that up, it kind of buys us the time that we need to be able to work on some of those gases that do stay for hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. And another point that you just reminded me of is warmer ocean temperatures directly correlates to more precipitation with storms. Mm-hmm. So like with hurricanes and like, I'm thinking about the one that just hit, um, Jacksonville. I, I don't even remember when it was. We covered it on the show. I think it was like two or three months ago at this point, but like there was like that little buffer I was talking about that, like it was like a seawall and it was like a foot left of like room to, to work with before it was just going to like completely overflow. You're just going to see way more coastal flooding mm-hmm. if, if the temperatures continue to get warm. So Another issue there. But let's move on to our next story, and it's titled, Big Oil Gets Failing Grade on Credible Net Zero Promises by Natasha Bolowski of Canada's National Observer. Canada's oil and gas sector's promise to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions has so far been nothing but greenwashing. 
The United Nations guideline on what makes a credible net zero pledge is in place to make sure that industries don't just say, hey, we're going to decrease our emissions, but then, you know, going behind everybody's backs and continuing to expand fossil fuel use and opposing federal or local climate policy. That is precisely what Canada's six largest oil and gas companies have been doing. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP, is the most actively opposed to climate policy progress. This organization's members account for 80% of Canada's oil and gas. Although CAP received the lowest score when it came to climate policy engagement, none of the six companies analyzed scored better than a D+. Canada's former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, is quoted as saying, if you're going to put up your hand and say you're a climate leader, that you're committed to net zero, you need to do that work. She added that the oil and gas industry should not be demanding that taxpayers subsidize technology and actions it needs to achieve emissions reductions targets, especially while oil and gas companies are raking in massive profits. While the UN report is an important tool to crack down on greenwashing, McKenna said the next step is having stricter disclosure and regulation of net zero commitments. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's very, very frustrating that a lot of times it seems like these net zero promises are nothing more than a PR stunt. And, you know, we, we've talked about Shell, we've talked about ExxonMobil. It's not just the companies that you and I are seeing around where you live or where I live. Like, mm-hmm. This is happening globally with a lot of big oil producers in a lot of the oil producing nations. So, you know, it's it's important to crack down on greenwashing at home, but it's happening everywhere. And that's where the UN needs to step in and say, look, like, yes, we need to do what's best for our individual countries. Yeah. But what does it matter if we're not doing what's best for the global community? Yeah. And I think it's important to know too, I think that like a lot of countries take our country as an example and like what our companies do, like we're like the Titans of industry, you know, all that stuff. And like what our companies do um, and how they act and how they, you know, are approaching marketing and all that stuff is, I'm sure, rubbing off on, you know, Canada, on Mexico, like all that, all these, all these other countries. Yeah. So, you know, we do have to look at, I know this is a story about Canada, but we do have to look at home and say like, you know, what are we doing? Why are we continuing to greenwash when we know it's wrong, when consumers are aware of what you're doing? It's just like, yeah, it's almost embarrassing. No, you're right. And and honestly, like we're saying we need, we're looking at home about the US, but wherever you're listening right now, like we, we do have international listeners. Yeah. True. Wherever you're listening, there's a good chance that you know, you can say we need to look at home and and that still applies. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the G7 is going to have massive corporations that are greenwashing and saying, "Yeah, we're doing all the right stuff." And they're doing like the bare minimum to make it look like they are environmentally conscious, but a lot of times they're not. Yeah. It's unfortunate. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we got two more quick hits to send you into the weekend. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. 
made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties. Handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, record-breaking boreal fires. Maybe a climate time bomb by Chelsea Harvey of E&E News. Forest fires in the boreal forests of Eurasia and North America produced record-breaking levels of carbon dioxide in 2021. Two of the factors that contributed to this are drought and intense heat, which are unfortunately factors that are projected to increase as the climate continues to warm. Boreal forest fires usually account for 10% of the world's wildfire-related carbon emissions, but 2021 saw that number increase to 23%. The research that discovered this also found that emissions from these fires have been increasing since at least the year 2000. Stephen Davis of the University of California, Irvine, a co-author of the study, said boreal forests could be a time bomb of carbon. And the recent increases in wildfire emissions we see make me worry that the clock is ticking. It's worth noting that it can be difficult to directly measure fire-related carbon dioxide emissions using satellites because CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a long time. So it is hard to pinpoint exactly where it came from. But carbon monoxide, on the other hand, has a much shorter lifespan. So we can very easily attribute it to wildfires based on the satellite data and then apply that number to carbon dioxide for comparison. In 2021, the researchers led by Bo Zhang of Tsinghua University in China found that boreal forests produced nearly 500 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Boreal forests have traditionally developed in carbon-rich landscapes, so they produce more carbon dioxide than other ecosystems when they burn. This means that they have a higher potential to influence the global climate and further that feedback loop of more carbon leading to more heat, more heat leading to more forest fires, more forest fires leading to more carbon, so on and so forth. I realize we didn't really define boreal forests at the start of this. So boreal forests are, like we said, they're they're common in Eurasia and North America. Um, They're going to be your colder forests full of deciduous trees, conifers. They're mostly found in Canada, Alaska, and Russia. They absorb a lot of carbon dioxide and are considered a carbon sink when they are not experiencing drought and forest fires. So because they are a carbon sink, that's why it's really important to protect them. You know, they are consuming a lot more carbon than the areas around them can produce. Healthy boreal forests really contribute to a healthy global climate. Yeah, like you just said, they're extremely important to to combating climate change. And a lot of things in nature are like a vicious cycle. And this is a perfect example of one. 
like you said at the, at the end there, like more carbon leads to more heat, more heat leads to more forest fires leading to more carbon. And it just goes on and on and on. It could go on for eternity. Unless we're conscious of how much carbon we continue to emit, we're, we're not going to go anywhere in this fight towards climate change. Yeah. And, and you know, the other side of that, and, and here's where, look, climate science, environmental science can be pretty daunting sometimes. Here's the reverse side of that coin. We can also have that same feedback loop, but with less carbon being emitted into the atmosphere, you know, with more renewable energy, with carbon capture technology, with people consuming less electric vehicles, you know, right. all of those, all of those things that add up fighting against deforestation in tropical rainforests and the boreal forests, less carbon means less heat, which is going to mean less drought, less forest fires, less sea level rise going to produce. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to continue to produce less carbon. So sure. That feedback loop is really daunting and it should be. And Stephen Davis is absolutely right to say that I'm worried about this. This could be a climate time bomb. Yeah. But this isn't just some sort of death sentence where we see this happening, the feedback loop ends and and it's over. We have time, albeit not as much as any of us would like. You know, we're running out of time to make a considerable difference in the fight against climate change. But we do have time to fix it if the right technologies, the right policies are put in place. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our last quick hit of the week, and it is by Mike Schuler of G Captain, who writes, New study finds seabirds avoid offshore wind turbines. How about that? I saw this on Reddit and one of the po- like one of the top comments was, Wow, it turns out birds aren't stupid and don't just fly into turbines. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> so a new study conducted by European energy company Vattenfall shows that offshore wind turbines at one UK wind farm are much less dangerous to birds than previously thought. This directly goes against one of the main arguments that offshore wind opponents will claim when trying to say why we shouldn't increase our offshore wind capacity. Over two years at the Aberdeen offshore wind farm off the east coast of Scotland, not a single collision between a seabird and a blade was recorded. Quick disclaimer, the study only tracked four bird species, but it can be used as a model to apply to more species. Yeah, so the study looked at the movements of herring gulls, gannets, kittiwakes, great black-backed gulls in detail from April to October when bird activity is at its height. The study also goes as far to say that seabirds went out of their way to avoid the wind turbine rotor blades. The birds' movement patterns adapted to rotor blades and became even better at changing their trajectories as they got closer to the turbine blades. Robin Cox, Vattenfall's project manager for this study, explains that the study has been able to focus in more detail on individual birds' flight behavior. The project was also conducted over a longer period of time to make it as accurate as possible. So this is one of those things that is super encouraging to me because I know we say this almost every week, but like we need as many people fighting the fight as possible on the right side of this. And in this case, we're looking at there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say whether it's for, oh, it's going to ruin my view of the ocean from my my coastal house or, <laughs> oh, I make a lot of money off fossil fuels or, oh, I just don't want to change the status quo because change is inherently bad. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people who just do not support this movement. 
here is some ammunition for our fight to say, look, I know you claim to be worried about birds. That's actually a non-issue because the birds like to not get hit by turbines. So they just (laughs) avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like I I think birds inherently don't want to die. Yeah. So I think that they probably are avoiding anything that looks like it could kill them. Mm -hmm. Um, But besides that, like let's let's act like they they don't they have no idea they 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 do want to die. Don't you think that adaptation's going to eventually kick in here? You know, like birds are going to be like, okay, my mom doesn't fly through uh, this you know this field because it's because the blades are going crazy and I might die. I'm just thinking about the story that we had about the bugs that just started eating microplastics. Yeah, nature adapts. <laughs> exactly. Like these bugs, do you think they were just like born you know 50 years ago when they were like yeah we're just going to continue to eat microplastics. Like, no, this is a new issue. And, you know, they're, they're starting to eat microplastics. And it's so damn cool how nature just adapts itself like that. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, look, I mean, we, we've talked about this a while back. I forget when, but if we want to talk about legitimate threats to birds, we need to start looking at skyscrapers in cities where it reflects sunlight so well on the, the perfect glass that birds fly into it. And if you're not worried about cities, bird strikes in rural areas where people clean their glass still. Like bird strikes into cars. Those are some of your top bird killers, not turbines. Do you remember what the number one was? Cats? Yeah, it was outdoor cats. Yes. So if we want to protect birds, (laughs) then that's where we need to start. Yeah. Bring your cats indoors and maybe don't clean your windows as much. Yeah, we need to target the window cleaners of New York City. That's this is this is what I've learned. You can also just tint, yeah, but you can tint the window glass slightly so that it doesn't reflect light perfectly. Or you could put some soap on the outside of the window. Like, yes, you know, there's there's ways. We had a bunch of solutions on that show. You're right. Yeah, there's ways to get around that without birds just flying into it. And in this case, birds just don't fly into wind turbines, so we don't really have to worry about it. <laughs> exactly. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chinusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people keep up with your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, everybody. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace.